when we survey people, we've done polls, because uh, most people, of course, don't know about housing first. Uh, so what do you feel about this idea that you should give people free homes? And we haven't discussed it, but an important part of these homes uh, is that there's no sobriety or mental health treatment. And you're, in fact, discouraged from encouraging even uh, uh, sobriety or mental health treatment. And I've talked to developers or that's crazy they're not even allowed to encourage you well they're not even allowed to to say well you you know you have to like get a mental health checkup when you're here i talked to a native american nonprofit developer in arizona and she said i was trying my clients have severe problems with alcohol and i was trying to just try to help them get off it and the federal government literally wrapped me across the knuckles and said you can't do that you have to let them drink as much as they want in your house and you can't say no and she was rightfully pulling her hair out about this Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm really excited to have my friend, the director of policy at the Cicero Institute, Judge Glock, here with us today. Great. Thanks for having me here. That is your real name, is Judge Glock. That is correct. Often source confusion, uh, my actual name and old family name. You're not a judge. Not in any way, shape or form, much to the disappointment of my family. So one of the reasons I started American Optimist is I thought there were all these cool things going on in the worlds of policy and tech that can make the future much brighter. So I'm really excited to kind of educate people about some of these policy issues, kind of what's happening in our country. The two areas you study the most are homelessness and housing, right? That's correct. And you, you were an economics professor before. What, 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 why do you know anything about, about these areas? Uh, so, yes, I was an economics professor at uh, West Virginia University. I had a focus on economic history and particularly on things like housing, mortgages, and mortgage finance. And uh, that, of course, got me uh, interested in having a more direct impact uh, in policy. And I moved over to the Cicero Institute to kind of hopefully get my fingers a little dirty and work in the work in those issues, hope to change things. Cicero has a 501c3, which is kind of does research and education and a C4. We talked to Jared earlier, who does the action part. I guess you're, you're involved in all parts, but you're kind of you're running, the, you're running the more education research part. That's that right? right. I run the, the sort of development of policy, the development of new research ideas, and uh, hopefully how that translates into future policy. So, Judge, you were working with us in California for a while. I come from California. We're in Texas today. But California is where we really started grappling with the housing problem. And I thought it was fascinating how, like many things in business, housing really ties back to the incentives, right? I recall it used to be that local areas in California, uh, when people were coming there in the 50s, 60s, 70s, is a huge boom time, and they would just build lots of housing. And if they needed more money for their local area, they could allow more housing and let people build more housing. And that would fund the local area. And so the incentives were really aligned. And then something happened where they became misaligned, right? So what was, there was a court case in the 70s where this happened? That's right. So uh, the basic idea, California was the, the fastest growing state in the nation for decades and uh, surpassed New York as the single largest state in the country in around 1960. Uh, and it was a very welcoming environment for builders. Uh, the, one of the main reasons people moved over there is because of the low cost of living, much like people moved to Texas today because of the low cost of living, uh, especially housing costs. Uh, but something changed around 1970 in California. Suddenly you saw a very sharp decrease in the amount of building happening in the state. And you saw uh, a lot more growth boundaries, anti-permitting sort of laws in the local level and anti-permitting uh, and housing laws at the state level. We had Prop 13 as well. That a lot of people blame Prop 13 for this. But Prop 13, there was a, it, it failed. So something like Prop 13 failed in the early 70s, but then passed in the late 70s. That's what, right. So, so, so what, what changed? So one of the important things that changed that, that people don't appreciate fully. And, and, and I should stop, sorry, and say Prop 13 
people who don't live in California might not know what it is. Sorry. It's, it, it limits your property tax from going up, basically. So it sticks the property tax to the year you bought your house, which is a lot of people argue is a handout to old people because their houses have been gone up over 40 years, but they're not paying higher taxes. But for some reason, the California voted they didn't want to have property taxes go up anymore. Exactly. And w- one of the reasons they did this was, like you mentioned, there was a court case called uh, Serrano v. Priest, decided by the California Supreme Court in 1976. And it was the first of this kind of line of what were called like an equity school funding cases, where the, the courts squinted and looked at the state constitution and said, well, we think the constitution says that every child in the state uh, should have the exact same level of education funding. We shouldn't have these local property taxes determining how much funding is given to each So, so in order district. to try to create equity, they said that local property taxes have to be shared everywhere. Exactly. So if you were living in, say, a rich municipality or school district, and you collected a lot of property taxes, you would have to ship your property taxes to a, quote, poorer school district uh, uh, to equalize the good, funding. Good idea it. in theory to have opportunity for, for poor kids, but but I guess this destroyed any incentive for localities to allow building. Uh, exactly. So, so as you mentioned, originally Prop 13 uh, the goal with, uh, was proposed by Howard Jarvis and others with the goal of limiting property taxes. And it failed in 1972 by about a two-to-one vote, overwhelming rejection of Prop 13. Uh, people, of course, had problems with local property taxes, but uh, they also like what they funded. Uh, what changed between that vote and the 1978 vote of Prop 13, which won by two-to-one margin and uh, inspired then-Governor Jerry Brown, who would later come back, of course, decades later as governor again, and Ronald Reagan to say, who actually opposed a similar uh, plan when he was governor of California, to say, this is one of the most important issues in the country. We need to hold back property taxes specifically. Uh, so he, why, he said that because that was politically popular. Because it was very politically. He saw the overwhelming vote and people described it as the beginning of the tax revolt in America, in a sense, this 1978 vote for Prop 13. Uh, but, you know, one of the important things about this is that that Serrano v. Priest upset the entire uh, the sort of shape of local funding in California. Uh, if you were building new sort of uh, uh, housing and developments in your area, or if merely you were... Uh, increasing the uh, property tax funding in your local schools, you got the benefit. Either you could cut your local property taxes or you could get better funding for your schools. And now with Serrano v. Priest that said, well, you guys have extra funding. Great. We'll ship that outside in some other district. And you guys don't get any benefit from building. You guys don't get any benefit from your local school funding. You don't, you're totally disassociated from your your local. So so local zoning got to be obviously anti-building. Uh, help driving prices up. Are there other factors that drove prices up there? Well, there was a lot of things happening. So the environmental movement in California was more powerful than it was elsewhere. And it made a, a sort of strange alliance with a lot of the uh, local homeowners groups and local anti-development People groups. People already owned a lot of real estate, funded a lot of environmental groups to lock up land to not let it get built. That's out. right. That's right. And uh, they said, well, of course, you know, there's some gopher or something in some piece of land that you have to protect. Or now that's been uh, commonly heard maybe around the, the Berkeley uh, ruling of the California Supreme Court, where they said you couldn't increase even the number of students at the University of Berkeley because of this California lawsuit system where you're allowed to sue just about anything. So, so, uh, so, so, so right now, Berkeley wanted to expand 
to indoctrinate more people in their ideology. No, I'm just kidding. But and uh, and, and they're not even allowed to because yes. of these environmental rules. Which exactly. Is, so it's kind of ironic. I think I understand. There's some people I saw the Ezra Klein guy who's usually pretty far on the left on these issues from mm-hmm. Vox. He's really pissed about this because he says like it's dysfunctional if we can't build. Yeah. Well, exactly. The, and now you've seen sort of. Um, uh, a corresponding odd bedfellows alliance here of often left wing groups who are concerned about housing inequity uh, and right wing groups that are concerned about overly restrictive environmental laws and overly restrictive anti sort of private property rights uh, legislation. Now, one of the things that we could talk about is uh, I agree with a lot of this new movement sort of uh, goals and aspirations. It's a new movement like it's called the Yimby movement. Yes, in my backyard, people trying to allow buildings so, so that poor people can can have homes. Exactly, exactly. As opposed to the what's called the NIMBY group, the No in My Backyard, which is opposing development. Uh, but this Yimby group is very, very focused on what we need to do is densify California cities. Their main enemy is single family suburbs and single family zoning. Yeah, the Yimbies want to get, a lot of the Yimbies on the left want to get rid of suburbs. It's like yeah. this classic conservative family place that they're attacking is kind of interesting. Well, there's a lot of, you know, sort of uh, left-thing ideals that can supposedly be met in the in the center city that can't be in the suburbs, which you can have sort of a more collectivist sort of group. You can have more density, which leads often to actually more voting for uh, redistribution uh, in some political science literature. You can have more mass transit and densified areas and so forth. But one of the things I often point out to the Yimbies, who which I have worked with and again largely support a lot of their goals, is that California has actually exceptionally dense cities. They have uh, cities about 7,000 to 8,000 people per square mile, which is very high relative to the rest of the US, which is more like three to 4,000 uh, people per square mile. Uh, and yet it has housing prices that are three to four times the level of the rest of the country. Uh, you know, we're talking in San Francisco or uh, San Diego or LA around, you know, 800,000 to a million per single family home. Absurdly high relative to most of the country where it's more like, even after recent boom, 400,000. So, but in most of the country, they have much less densities. They have lots of single family zoning uh, in Columbus and Nashville and Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. but they have property prices that are orders of magnitude why, why lower. Why is that? How have they made it work? So I think it goes back to what you were talking about before, this incentive issues. So they have something in the sort of urban economics literature called fiscal zoning, which is the idea that, well, you want to uh, zone for certain things that bring more fiscal benefits towards your city and maybe your school district as well. And a lot of people kind of poo-poo the idea. It's supposed to be discriminatory. You're not, uh, you know, encouraging building in the right places, maybe the higher in suburbs and so forth. But you looked at California in the 1960s and 50s before these sort of court rulings messed up the system. And yeah, the areas where you had much more development were poor areas because they were more willing to offset the sort of fiscal gains from new development and take the other real cost of development. Well, poor they areas say, had incentive to build. Yeah, areas money. like, you know, I think we go up in Fremont, uh, were very pro-development because they said, uh, as I quoted in, in one of my pieces I wrote for Cicero, cows don't pay taxes. Well, if we we want to develop some land, uh, we're going to get the taxes, going to improve our school districts. We care about that. Maybe a richer area doesn't care as much about that. They're more concerned about congestion. They're more concerned about local pollution or something. Uh, and so they keep zoning a little tighter. So even, so even with the single family homes, if you, if you zone to have enough of them around, I guess the Bay Area is 
40 in San Francisco's 40% cattle land. Right? Exactly. The 40% of that land in that nine county Bay Area is, is reserved for cattle. So the problem isn't all these single family homes sprawled over the, the California like the cattle landscape. are maybe more of the problem. Yeah, the, the, the areas which are all these cities that just refuse to develop anything. Not that they're but, refusing but to there develop. But there are probably places where we could allow people to build oh, no, buildings it, as well. Exactly. Too, there's, yeah. there's, there's certainly realm, especially in California, for densifying and allowing more development in downtown areas. The only area where I disagree with sort of the Yimbies and where I think the evidence doesn't bear them out is the idea that, well, densification uh, is the only real solution to the housing affordability crisis, and we shouldn't pay more attention to what's called greenfield development, not, so allowing yeah, these cities not to just, grow It's out. not just about densification. I guess people think greenfield is somehow bad for carbon use and stuff, but it seems like it's actually even worse for how it hurts poor people if you don't let them do it. Exactly. Well, there is the cost on poor people, and I recently had a piece for the Breakthrough Journal, uh, Environmental Journal, uh, called Sprawl is Good, in which I talked about the environmental benefits of sprawl. Uh, in fact, tall buildings tend to have more CO2 emissions than short ones. Uh, they have to use concrete and steel. Uh, that requires a lot more energy-intensive use than using wood, which is a carbon sink. Uh, they tend to be less energy efficient. Uh, you have to pay a lot of stuff for the HVAC systems to heat and cool the areas. Uh, uh, it's harder to move uh, uh, air and heat or, or uh, air and coolness up in a building than it is merely to keep it contained in a small so the, single. So the, so the Yimbies are on the right track with the zoning rules. Maybe they shouldn't require uh, you know these collectivist cities necessarily. It's no, not the, the only answer to, to bring down the cost. The beauty of uh, you know of American local government, and perhaps we could talk about this, is it allows for diversity of different living options, and we have a diversity of different people here, and we want them. Some people do want a Got quiet it. neighborhood. So you think we, we should have local governments that are that each control these and make these different choices? Some of them will choose to go denser. Some of them will choose to go single family, and you should have. And, and, but I, I guess you want to give them the incentive to have more building, though. Exactly, which is how it worked in, in most of American history. We have about twenty thousand municipal governments in in America, and they they raise about twenty percent of all government revenue. We, you know, if you read even your local, so twenty percent of the government revenue goes to local governments or comes from local governments. Comes from local exactly, governments. and and you want and you want to and you want to let them use as much of that as possible for their area in order to incentivize them to do what they yeah, want. Yeah, it, it works. There's a competition in local governments works just like competition in business, and there's a lot of great literature on this uh, uh, in history. There's something called the Tebow hypothesis, the idea uh, that People in local governments where they have options, quote, vote with their feet. If you have 15 different municipal governments in the area, well, maybe you're a park person or maybe you're a school person. And you could choose one that meets your preferences. But we've also found, and that helps to have that diversity, but we've also found that allowing those sort of different areas keeps taxes down and allows the quality of services to go up. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, for the University of Austin, we're planning on doing it probably just east of the county that has Austin in it because the county to the east is like slightly more permissible, easier to build, easier to work with is our is our guess. Exactly. And so you found in, in areas that, in, again, a lot of the, the left traditionally wanted regional governments. You want one big government that kind of controls everything. The idea is you can get all of the different costs and benefits kind of inside the government. But we found is the areas with the more competing governments, again, tend to have lower taxes, more confined, uh, they're more likely to adhere to what's called the median voter, the voter in the middle of the spectrum, and they're more likely to have higher quality services. So, so what's Cicero doing on housing or local government? Are there issues here that we are doing or that we could be doing to help help make these things better? So, you know, we we are when we were previously based in California, we did a lot of stuff about trying to rearrange the incentives. And uh, as you and I know, we are still, you know, trying to help groups in there do that, but California is a, it's a different, is a, difficult place to get things is done. It's a difficult place to get things done. So a lot of what Cicero is doing is trying to get some of the, the property tax incentives right. We have a bill that we've been working on to try to help uh, local governments put up more of these uh, 
sort of windfall funds they've gotten recently, the stimulus into uh, into the hands of taxpayers. Uh, there's a sort of tradition in the urban economics literature called the flypaper effect, which is specifically that the bigger the government and the fewer competing governments you have, the more likely money is to stick to that government instead of returning down to the people as you do when you have more competing. So we're trying to encourage that in one of our property tax bills. But a lot of what we're trying to do in, uh, is around homelessness. And it's around uh, uh, trying to take the problems, which, as we all know, are actually tend to be very focused in those center cities where there is sort of less competition and less sort of voice for your median voter uh, and that are pursuing. There's, some there's very- more things that are broken in these areas. So let's, let, let's 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 talk a little bit about homelessness. You know, one of one of the big things for me was just living here in Austin and seeing you know, and seeing how the, I guess the mayor was very progressive and he actually went to San Francisco and L.A. and he copied some of their policies. And uh, and, you know, pretty much everyone in the country should know by now it's probably not a good idea to copy San Francisco and LA policies. And, he, you know, I, I believe he was told to to show people capitalism doesn't work and put it in their faces. I think that was the quote. And so he put all these camps downtown, which they, they were not allowed to be there. He put them all all there and put it in people's faces. And I hear drug trafficking went up, sex trafficking went up. Uh, homicides went up dramatically amongst homeless people, is my understanding, and uh, and of, of course we were involved in passing a lot of ban the ban the camps. But there's, there's obviously that's there's still like lots of things to fix and solutions there though. So, so what's what the, what what are we working on right now? Are we trying to educate people? Are we trying to get certain laws passed? Well, both definitely. So as you said, uh, you know, your and I work uh, work in this area has been inspired by a lot of what we've seen and experienced in San Francisco and Austin. And both those areas are great examples of how not to do things. I think, you know, the results speak for themselves there. Uh, yeah, what you saw in Austin was in 2019, the, the city council uh, turned back a previous ban on street camping. They repealed a law that said it was illegal to camp and sleep on the streets. And what you saw was pretty surprising and pretty rapid. You had about a 40 to 50% increase in unsheltered homelessness in the year. That's homelessness out on the streets. And a lot of people said, well, it's just more visible. And like you mentioned, you know, some people weren't shy about the what they saw as the benefits of that. This is, well, it's better to recognize the cost of homelessness than hide it. And if people recognize it, then they'd be willing to take more supportive, supposedly generous actions to, uh, uh, to fix it. Uh, but one of the surprising things we saw there, and we've seen this elsewhere, is the amount of sheltered homelessness went down by about 20%. So clearly people were leaving the shelters for the streets. And this is actually not uncommon in these areas that sort of allow street. I remember there, there are New York Times interviews around this where there's like guy who like offered a home, but he preferred to live in the tent downtown, which I thought was pretty funny. Even the New York Times guy they found is, was like that. I think people are living near your home when you moved here. <laughs> uh, yes. Surprisingly for someone who uh, who works on homelessness issues, I had a uh, tenant camp at Spring Up uh, about as far from me as you are right now, right behind my house. And uh, Emmanuel, Kaylee, Adam, Linda, and a few others moved there. Peaked at about eight people in about five extra storage tents, as they called them. And we had to kind of find a, a modus vivendi to, to make uh, do as the, this sprung up. Uh, and, you know, what I saw there was what I saw in, in the tent uh, encampments in California. It was uh, it was littered with drugs, uh, trash. It was a fire hazard. It was dangerous. It was all the reasons why nobody should be camping on public land. They're not made for that. Uh, you know, so one of the things that that Cicero has advocated is to try to encourage these local cities to 
uh, actually enforce their bans on street camping. Well, so 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 someone might who doesn't know this issue might say, well, that sounds really heartless to yeah. me. You're just trying to take these people and not look at them and send them away. Like, so what? Why why is enforcing the ban the good thing for the homeless people? Isn't that isn't that just like pushing them out of our sight? No. So I mean, it, you know, when the cities. We see what happens both when cities do and they don't enforce the bans. And let's, as you mentioned, you know, there's we've already discussed some of the the public issues that there is crime, there is uh, disorder on the streets, and all of that. But the main issue should be like, well, how does this affect the homeless? And you know, one of the examples I cite is in Los Angeles, uh, where LAPD Commissioner Willie Bratton. Uh, one of the best cops in American history. He was famously a former NYPD commissioner. Came over there and said, we're going to enforce the Safer Cities Initiative. We're going to actually really ban camping on Skid Row mm-hmm. in uh, in L.A., now, of course, infamous. And it worked. Uh, a study done right afterwards showed that uh, crime and violence in the area, mainly against the homeless themselves, went down 40%. And it didn't seem to spill over to these well, other neighborhoods. Where do the homeless people go when you ban them? What happens? So it, it's the same place where they usually came from. Now, you look at where the homeless came from. The vast majority were staying with friends or family. And sometimes they wore out their welcome. Uh, and sometimes they were in shelters before. And often, the problem they have with friends and family and shelters is that they have lots of rules around, um, you know, most likely around drug use and, and shelters elsewhere about you know, basic sort of taking care of one's mental health issues on the streets. You don't have to do that. So, so, so I understand these homeless people, the studies show 75% of them have some kind of mental health condition and 75% of some kind of drug condition. So usually there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. So, and, and I was recently on a, a count of the, uh, uh, of the homeless down in San Antonio, where annually the cities are required to do a count of their homeless and you're supposed to go out there and interview them. And I was interviewing them and talking to one of the local San Antonio sort of uh, outreach individuals. And they said, and I asked them, well, how much uh, of the people out here have mental health or drug abuse issues? Uh, The people actually on the streets, not in the shelters, which we can talk about as distinct. Uh, and he said, you know, conservatively, around 100%. <laughs> and, you know, that's, almost that, that is, you know, even these, all we get from this is surveys. But, you know, the people you talk to and the people, if anyone experienced someone on the street, it's overwhelmingly mental health and drug abuse. Like, there's just no doubt about so, so that. What, so what's the what's the solution? Like, if you're going to ban the tents, you're going to push them back with family, you're going to push them back in shelters. Uh, a lot of these people need help. Like, what, what yeah, should we be they doing? They absolutely need help. And that's the important thing. Uh, as I often tell people, allowing a mentally ill individual to slowly kill themselves in the street is in no way, shape, or form can be portrayed as compassionate. It's not. That person obviously needs help. And some help has to be, you know, frankly, like the, the Democratic mayor of Houston said, Sylvester Turner, tough love. Uh, or like I know someone you and I have, have talked and worked with, Mayor Kevin Falconer of San Diego. Uh, you need to push some people who are actually in the worst Christ of their lives into I lo- treatment. I love that. I love that video where the guy who was in a tent on heroin, homeless, was thanking Mayor Falconer in San Diego for having gotten rid of the tents and forced him to go get treatment. And he's saying, I would have stayed in that tent and been on drugs if you hadn't come and exactly. put me in the shelter. The, so this documentary yeah. that we recently released yeah. uh, uh, with PragerU uh, described Tom Wolf, who was talking about his time uh, out on the streets and said, you know, I was I, uh, I had severe drug addiction. I lost my job because of heroin. And uh, uh, I would have been on the streets forever. And I've talked to other people. Many other people said, you know, if someone hadn't pushed me off there, I would have died eventually of drugs. Tom Wolf's actually San Francisco. You know, we're excited to partner with PragerU to educate millions of Americans about these issues. Let, let's show a clip of Tom Wolf. Good morning, everyone. Uh, only three years ago today, I was sleeping on a piece of cardboard in the doorway on Golden Gate and Hyde in the Tenderloin, severely addicted to heroin. I am living proof 
that there's a direct correlation between homelessness and substance use in the city. You can build all the housing and get everybody off the street housed, but if you're struggling with addiction or mental illness, you're just housed with drug addiction and mental illness. So right now in our society, I think for the last 20 years, we've been doing something called housing first, right? And the federal government, uh, HUD, you know, is the agency of the government, is about a third of the money for these homeless groups. And they give it to these nonprofits, which are all very progressive. There's thousands of them around the nation. And they spend the money trying to create housing for these people. I was fascinated. We, we have guys working with Cicero who, who, who went with homeless people to get services to see what it was like. And there was a guy who had lost his job and he wanted... He wanted skills for a new job. He wanted to learn how, what he could do. And he came with them to, to, to the place. And he said, well, how do I get new training? Is there other services available? And she's, and the woman said, sir, you deserve a home. And he said, well, I don't want a handout. I want to learn how to have a job. And I want, can you help me with that? She said, no, sir, you have a right to a permanent home. People just like you get homes all the time. So it's interesting, like, like the whole homeless complex right now seems to be pushing this housing first narrative. And, and, you know, I talk to people, they say, well, Joe, can't you just build houses for all of them? And I understand San Francisco had a certain number of homeless people. It built that many, that much housing. And now there's even more homeless people. So it seems like there's just like this huge demand where if you build housing, it's not clear it goes to the right people. It's not clear more people don't come. Like, like why isn't this working the way people thought? Yeah. So uh, the idea, as you mentioned, housing first, it was uh, like a lot of both good and bad ideas that came out of New York originally in the 1990s. Uh, a guy named Sam DeSimris said, uh, uh, you know, took what seemed to be the intuitive logic of uh, the problem of homelessness to its final yeah, conclusion. Yeah, when I first heard about this, I think Utah did something like this too. I'm like, oh, you just build all these places to go. That's really great. And there's no more homeless people. That seems like, shouldn't we be compassionate enough to build all these? It sounds really good. Exactly, exactly. And But this gets to the issue that the, the very term homelessness was sort of originated by activist groups in the, in the 70s and the 80s to redefine extreme poverty. We, we used to call them vagrants. Vagrant, bums, tramps, bums. There was tramps. a lot of different names. You don't use those words anymore. You do, you're, not, you're not allowed to use those words anymore. And, you know, for, well. perhaps for good reason. But they did describe distinct groups of people. I mean, I think one of the things that we understood with vagrants or something, which was a not uncommon term at the time, was that they were pretty mobile. Uh, and this was one of their issues. They didn't have a real fixed address or a fixed family and, and or community. And they'd go around, they do some some work, different places. Yeah. Uh, the, the redefining this as homelessness made it seem like the only issue with a particular group of poor people was lack of a home. So as you said, intuitively, it makes sense. Give them a home. Uh, and starting around the mid early 2000s, uh, people like Mayor Gavin Newsom of San, then of San Francisco uh, said exactly what you said. Like we can, we can, what if we just, just build, build enough, enough home for every unsheltered homeless well, person? Well, he failed up to governor very <laughs> successfully. Well, exactly. He, he himself later admitted, well, maybe it's beyond our hand, but now they're going to try to throw another few billion at the, at the problem. Uh, but yeah, San Francisco, like Arizona, like a lot of other places, uh, they tried this model. It seems said. like it just brought everyone in when you try to build free homes, well, there's, there's <laughs> demand for them. There, if you, maybe not too surprising for an economist, but uh, if you give people a lot of free things, uh, there's going to be a lot of demand for those free things. And yeah, San Francisco, Arizona, these other states and cities, they built enough homes for every single unsheltered homeless person in the street. 10, 15 years later, they have more homeless people in the streets. It Should, clearly didn't Can they seem. just build five times as many homes? Well, there, there's there, there's always that possibility. We could be we could be eventually going to hit the sort of, you know, peak of the curve where we've solved. The, and then we'll the have lots problem. of mentally ill people on drugs in in small homes well, around so our cities. It, it, because they're still kind of in a bad well, situation. Exactly. So the, the part of the premise of Housing First was, well, the reason you have all these other problems, the, the reason, like, even if they admit that, OK, these mental health and, and drug issues are overwhelmingly important. I think they come from not having a home. Yeah, they 
come from not? That seems ridiculous on which, its face. See, yeah, most yeah. of the people didn't immediately weren't, you know, sort of working nine to five, no significant problems, lost the home, and then every mental so, health and drug problem. So followed. should we, instead of spending money on all these homes, we should have shelters, we should have mental health services, mental health courts is one thing I really like the idea of, or rather than send someone to jail for something, you you force them into treatment if they're doing things that are illegal. Yeah, and which is which is what a lot of places, both progressive and non, are, are doing now. They found that, you know, as I often cite, the National Academy of Science said, there's no evidence that these housing first units improve the health of the homeless. Like, despite a lot of claims, we seem to know that now. So this seems pretty intuitive. We've learned over 20 years as a society, we now realize we need more mental health institutions. We probably need something like mental health courts to treat them better. Um, you know, we, we should make sure there's good shelters that work and we should measure them and make sure they're helping people if we can. Um, let's talk about the homeless industrial complex, because it seems to me from the outside that the reason this is so hard to solve is there's groups that employ tens of thousands of people now in our major cities that are actually paying themselves huge amounts to deal with homelessness and their incentive is not to solve the problem. Like, what, what, what have we seen here? Yeah, so, you know, there's obviously an infinitude of, of good people working on homelessness. And we'll talk about some of those in a second. But, like, for any area where you throw, in this case, tens of billions of dollars an issue, there's going to be a lot of incentive to sort of uh, maximize the problem and continue the problem indefinitely. Uh, so, you know, I often like to quite quote uh, uh former mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown, there, who was there right before Gavin Newsom. He called the the sort of subsidized housing lobby the, the sacred cartel, because they sort of draped themselves in this holy image. The sacred uh, but, cartel. Yeah, 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 but raked in billions of dollars on that, even though the, the building was incredibly inefficient, even though there was lots of overhead costs. Uh, he was and, a clever guy. He was Kamala's boyfriend, right? <laughs> that that yeah. he was back yeah. in the day, long time ago. And probably in history, he'll go down mainly as that. But for people who know a little bit of San Francisco, he was just a a fascinating guy. If anyone has their chance, I, for for sort of a modern day Tammany Hall look, his his autobiography Basic Brown is well worth the read. Uh, but you know, one of the things he he showed is that these these groups were just incredibly inefficient. They recently did an audit uh, in L.A. Uh, and in San Francisco that found these things cost a. About seven hundred dollars per square foot, and around eight hundred thousand dollars maxed out per apartment. This is fairly bare rooms. Now that's what is, expensive. This is very expensive. This is even very, I know that's expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even even someone who lives in a place as nice as this knows that, that seems really high. Uh, so you know, one of the things that why is it so high? Uh, one of the things surprising uh, about forty percent of this money went to what's called soft costs in the construction industry. This is the paperwork, the financing, all these other little things, and and that means there's this kind of white collar industry, this sacred cartel that grew up around these subsidized housing units uh, that has to meet all these particular government requirements and has to meet all these particular codes and financing uh, sort of structure. And that's an issue with housing in general, right? Is that sometimes codes you can just make them more expensive? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, but, but this but is this is particularly this egregious. is particularly because yeah. you're trying to build these particular home units or affordable housing units, it's very, very expensive. And this is cutting down the number of units you can build. Uh, again, LA's audit was very you know, damning in this regard. And uh, they found, you know, there was, it's a great chance for giveaways for every imaginable group. There's special environmental codes. There's a project labor agreement for labor unions. Got it. So, uh, it's, like, so it's basically a feeding trough for special interests for the city for all the favorite groups. Exactly. You can say it's for money. homeless, but then, well, we can also benefit some green groups and some labor unions and some developers. And, and that's the incentive of the politicians 
solutions is let's just pay off all of our friends to cement our power using yeah. these. So wherever there's going to be a lot of money spent, it's that, that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's it's, it's it creates an inter, very powerful interest group. A safer and if you're if you if you're against it, then you're against helping homeless people. So it's pretty hard to to argue. I guess. Yes, where when I have testified uh, in state legislatures about this issue, the one I uh, I get bloodied on the nose on this one more than anyone else. You're uh, you know, you're racist, you're hateful, you're you're evil, you're uh, you. Why do you hate homeless people? Of course. And, uh, you know, one of the th one of the minor things I do tell, besides the fact that I think this clearly doesn't help homeless people, as the evidence shows, is that, you know, these things which some people act like are these radical ideas are supported by just about everyone in the mainstream of American life, left, right or center. Uh, when cities like Austin or San Francisco or Denver voted on, say, camping bans, overwhelmingly passed in some of these most liberal cities in America. Uh, it wasn't a left, right, or, or blue, red thing. Well, people these people, but, but you're, you're protecting homeless people yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was common sense. And this idea when we survey people, we've done polls, because uh, most people, of course, don't know about housing first. Uh, so what do you feel about this idea that you should give people free homes? And we haven't discussed it, but an important part of these homes uh, is that there's no sobriety or mental health treatment. And you're, in fact, discouraged from encouraging even uh, uh, sobriety or mental health treatment. And I've talked to developers or that's crazy. They're not even allowed to encourage you. Well, they're yeah. not even allowed to, to say, well, you, you know, you have to like get a mental health checkup when you're here. I talked to a Native American nonprofit developer in Arizona and she said, I was trying, my clients have severe problems with alcohol and I was trying to just try to help them get off it. And the federal government literally wrapped me across the knuckles and said, you can't do that. You have to let them drink as much as they want in your house and you can't say no. And she was rightfully pulling her hair out about this. But Ian, when you tell average Americans about this, we do the polls. Do you think, uh, you know, basically free homes should be given out with no sobriety or mental health treatments to people on the street? Overwhelming. 70, 80% of people say, of course not. Again, almost no distinction, Democrat, Republican, whatever. This they is one this of those common sense issues where the special interests and extreme People have just gone off the deep end, basically. And, exactly. And it's, it's, it's become a religion for them that this is the right way to handle things. And it's just it's so frustrating to me because they will they constantly try to demonize you when you work on this issue. We're constantly trying to say, here's what actually works. Here's how I spend money to help the most people. And their policies are literally leading to more homicides. They're leading to, to all sorts of drug trafficking and sex trafficking. They're leading to, to screwing up our cities. And, and and yet and yet they're the ones trying to attack us for being bad people if we try to yeah. go against it. And as as the sort of fringe in the group, which again, uh, you know, we're not the fringe. We're in fact in the median of San Francisco voters so, on this so, issue. So, so, so what are what are the so seventy percent of people agree with this? Maybe more eighty percent for some of these things. What are the solutions? What legislation can we pass? Like some of these cities, they're controlled by extreme progressive people who are paying off all their friends. We're not going to get them to fix it necessarily. We yeah, could try yeah. to run better people maybe in Austin. I'm skeptical SF's going to elect anyone good, but you know, we'll see. But so, so assuming we can't get it done at these cities, like what else can we, be, can we be doing? So, you know, one of the places I work in the state legislature, uh, and we try to do things. Well, sort of the, the state is not going to continue to fund, say, uh, empty shelter beds in uh, Atlanta or Phoenix if you are not going to enforce the, the camping bans or find some way to reduce the street. So, ba so, so basically, basically make the cities have good policies from the state because yeah. the state's paying for a lot of stuff. Yeah, the state's paying for a lot of these things. This They're is ironic because we just spoke about local government earlier in the conversation. Yeah. And, and in general, you want to give local government the incentive to fix things for itself. Exactly. And so, but, so, but so we're violating that. So. But, but, you know, I think this is important correlate. As I said, you know, these sort of big center cities, which I often compare to sort of uh, uh, sort of like mining towns, they kind of hit a jackpot. And that jackpot is the center city, which is all this free sort of commercial real estate that they can tax. 
it's, it's a huge network want. effect, basically. Yeah, it's a huge they, network yeah. effect, and that no one's disappearing. There's a little mini Facebooks and Googles that have yeah. like sprung up everywhere. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you just and they can extract as much as resources as they want from that. And Central Austin, Central Austin is always going to be Central Austin, no matter how bad the city does. Uh, so they can extract a lot of bad things. And this is sort of the evidence I sh- talked about about competitive local governments. They found the smaller local governments tend to be much in closer to the median voter, more likely to listen to their constituents. It's those large governments, the Phoenixes and Austin, which they are get, actually bigger. They get, they get captured by special interests. They get ca- as much to, more likely to capture by special interests. I mean, well, one thing is they're simply larger than, you know, half a dozen American states. Austin's about a million people. It's the 10th uh, largest city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a America. massive area. And so not surprisingly, there's not much competition in an area with a, a, a million plus people. So 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 we're, so, we're, so the best strategy here is say, okay, you cities are pursuing really dumb policies that are causing homicides, causing people to be hurt, just wasting a lot of. And you're resources. not even listening to your voters, as we saw in Austin and in yeah, San well, Francisco. Yeah, well, they'll vote for one thing, and the city and the, the city, city will refused do to do anything else. about so, it. So, so listen so, to your voters. So let's, yeah. so, let's, so let's go to the state, and when you can go to the state, whether it's Arizona or Texas or other states where where the legislature is willing to listen, we can get them. And one of the things I think is interesting, you can get them to maybe insist on having some sort of accountability for these homeless groups. Like to, to yeah. me, it seems like you should have, you know, obviously transparency, but maybe make them have some kind of metrics based goals. Like I would, if I give money to a startup, it has to have like a deck and I say, we're going to hit these called KPIs, key performance indicators. Yeah. And you kind of see if it's tracking or not. And I don't keep giving it more money if it's just completely missing its indicators, but I have yeah. a really good excuse. Whereas these homeless groups they don't even have met- metric goals. And I'm sure if they did, they would have completely missed them already. Yeah, they yeah. keep getting money. So is there some way to put that in place? Well, exactly. So their, their metric goals are kind of all in, Input oriented instead of output oriented. We will pay you X more of money to buy housing. Or oh, that's whatever. funny. Well, that'd be really useful if you're a business and you're like, you're going to give me three million dollars for my business, and I'm going to spend this much on this many developers. Yeah, I promise to <laughs> spend on at least forty-five developers. I don't promise what comes out the other side, but I'll just have Man, developers. That would be very easy, yeah. nice business to run. And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'll have a million auditors to make sure you spend it on each and every developer, but not one auditor to say, did you actually meet the goals? So of should, there should be like, it should be like, are we getting people from being homeless to not being homeless yeah. anymore? more maybe or, so, or getting people mental health treatment that leads to them not pooping on the street or something like that. Yeah, whatever it is. You can say, you know, one of the things we have for these, what they call pay for performance contracts is say either a part of the contract or sometimes if you can get the right financing, the whole of the contract can be based on, well, how many people do you make sure don't return from the streets? And one of the surprising things about housing first, and even when you give people an almost free apartment, a large number still leave it and go back to the streets. Really? So uh, people are getting free apartments and so, they, they just don't want to live in them. So yeah, besides the fact that you sometimes have people setting up tents inside the apartments because they're, you know, it's just tough for them to live inside. They don't know how to live inside after so many years in the streets. Uh, a lot of the housing first groups tout that, hey, you know, 80% of people stay in these units over two years. And to my mind, that seems like a disaster. If I give someone a free apartment and 20% leave for the streets after two years, I have failed miserably. Uh, but some people tout that actually. And so, so yeah. So, so we got to figure out the right pay for performance frameworks for these yeah. people. Got to make sure money is going towards that. It sounds Sounds like it sounds like obvious. Like the federal government is pushing housing first. That's a battle to be had at HUD, depending yeah. on who's running. And there. that's a huge problem. And we, that's, that's that's a battle for DC. But but the states can actually could could say anything going on in their state. Pay for performance. What 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 else could we be doing for these groups? So I guess banning street. Camping. So the street camping, like encouraging local cities to, to ban street camping. And the other thing is mental health, which we've we've talked about. Which I, mean, is, I, mean, I mean, should there be mental health courts? Have you drawn that up yet? That seems like a cool thing to draw up. Just yeah, teach people so how to do a lot of places, you know, starting a. Uh, uh, 
in the early 1980s in Miami uh, create these sort of specialized court systems, which the goal is not to put handcuffs on people. And again, the goal is nobody wants to criminalize homelessness, but you need some sort of penalty for someone who's breaking the law. And that usually is, well, let's see, you have some sort of mandated treatment. And even today, the Miami-Dade uh, Mental Health Court is one of the sort of pillars of the nation where they follow up people, make sure you're taking your pills, make sure you're cool. So it's not just treatment. drug courts in Florida. They actually have mental health courts where yeah, they really do mental, follow up and help. And, yeah. and then, and then, and then they're kind of experts to judge how to help the person yeah, versus and just sitting to, under prison forever. Yeah. Or frankly, sent through a housing first unit where you're actually, the government's refusing to allow force people to take their pills. So, here. so, and, and, and what, what are there lots of good nonprofits you've encountered or like, what are the ones that seem to be aligned with the right answers? Yeah. There? I mean, there, there's a million good people working on great stuff out there in homelessness. And I've been astounded in my, my work on the issue, uh, the number of them. Uh, you know, two of the ones that, that one we feature in the in the documentary uh, for PragerU is uh, Community First, which is outside of Austin. A man named Alan Graham started this up, a developer originally, who uh, devoted his life to kind of a, you know, the, the Community First name was kind of imagined as a counterpart to Housing First. He says, well, the issue with someone on the street isn't just, well, they don't have, you know, four walls and a roof. They they need something they more than that. They don't have a that. community. They don't have a community. So he's building tiny homes as part of a community. And part of a community, which, as he emphasizes, also includes responsibility. You have yeah. to actually participate. You actually have to pay rent. You actually have to uh, contribute to the community. We're not going to give you something free because then you have no skin in the game. We don't feel, you don't feel a part of something if you get something I've been free. really impressed with Community First. He's helping yeah. a lot of people. He's here. helping a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, you know, Know, there's a million. I could, you know, the if anyone has encountered any of the Salvation Army adult rehabilitation clinics, they're incredible. They're very tough. They put you in there and put you through basically a boot camp to get someone off. That's great. Adult. So they figured out how to put someone through a boot camp. And you, kind of, it's kind of the opposite of the kind of the way things work in America these days. Yeah. Where everything is well, okay. You, as cleaning, opposed to, yeah. you cleaning, getting off drugs. <laughs> people will tell it's you tough. it's the hardest thing anyone could do in their life. And these people, like, That's you're awesome. not going to do it by just kind of crossing your fingers and hope someone's going to eventually get cured. Uh, those areas, like, it's tough, but the people who get out of them, you know, have very high rates of staying off these drugs for. That's awesome. Know, the next so there, are, there are a lot of people working these issues, but because there's so much money, there's some bad people, which end up grabbing a lot of the resources and we have to, we have to be careful. And that. yeah, that federal money, it, it's polluting a lot of the nonprofit things. You have people like that, uh, that Indian group I talked about in Arizona that maybe want to be a little stricter, but the federal money is that even if it doesn't pay for all of it, it pays for just a hint and that just reshapes the entire way the nonprofit is working. Groups like Community First and uh, the Salvation Army basic for, you know, at least for the rehab stuff, basically take no federal funds because they just can't deal they, with all they, these they, just, they disagree with the mandates. Yeah. And, and so the people actually doing it right can't take the federal money because the federal money is confused about what actually works. Yeah. Judge, if we step back and we look, you know, if we if we really get this housing homeless policy right, why does this matter for our country? And how, why is this a big part of, of what we're doing over the next decade? Well, you know, I, I think one that, you know, you ask people, it matters. You know, one of the surprising things is in California, uh, homelessness is rated as the number one issue in the whole state, which is amazing. You've never had an issue like that become a number one wow. issue anywhere else before. Is price of housing close to that? Yeah, it's, it's always, those are the two that so, are So, so these are things people actually care yeah, about. The average so American really cares about it. And they care about it because they're compassionate and they care about it because the effect why, of the city. Why should someone living in a red state where the house of, cost of housing is not too high and there's not homelessness around you, they care about this at all? Does that matter to the well, rest of the you country? know, we are all tied in together in a society. And, you know, frankly, American cities are still and will remain the sort of the, the epicenter of innovation in America. Most of our wealth is going to come out of these cities that have, you know, what economists call agglomeration effects. When a bunch of smart people get together, the total is more mm -hmm. than the sum of its parts. It's important for our whole country, for our cities to be functional yeah, and, places. And if people, you know, when I've talked to people, and I'm sure you have, that the single reason they fled California was often homelessness. 
And if not homelessness, it was tied with housing, which we've talked about yep. as the issue. And driving people out of very productive, successful areas in California, you know, particularly nice, in fact, uh, just in terms of the weather, uh, because of just atrocious policies affects every single one of us. But it's also just a, it's a human disaster uh, to have 550,000 Americans uh, out there homeless and to be knowing we're spending billions and often making the problem worse is, you know, should tug at the heartstrings of everyone. Well, helping hundreds of thousands of people and, and securing the future of our country is a good cause. Judge, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. We've learned a lot from Judge today about policy around housing and homelessness. Uh, here's a trailer from a new video he helped work on with PragerU. Nowhere is the homeless crisis more apparent than San Francisco. The Golden City spends hundreds of millions of dollars each year to address homelessness, yet the problem has exploded. Politicians promise to end the crisis. We are going to eliminate uh, homelessness by the end of this year. Only to throw up their hands in defeat. So what went wrong? Why are some cities surrendering while others are reducing their homeless population? As in many cases, it boils down to governance. And nearly all the cities in crisis have one policy in common, housing first. And the housing first model is, is premised on a very simple and almost intuitive idea that if you're homeless, the problem is that you need a house. And so to solve homelessness, we should merely give people homes. And now this policy is being pushed from the top down. The program, as I understand it, was started out of New York for the very severely chronically homeless, I believe in the 80s and 90s, and the Bush administration got a hold of it, implemented it in 2008. Under the next administration, it was rolled out as a one-size-fits-all solution. And there's a lot of appeal to that idea that, look, if this person is gonna be on the street for five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, why don't we just give them a house and not deal with all of the problems of picking them up, putting them in jail, putting them in a hospital, doing the rest of it. Let's find a central place where we can treat them. The problem with this theory is that if you look at the numbers of what's actually causing people to be homeless, it's overwhelmingly problems with mental health and drug addiction. And Housing First requires no sobriety or treatment in order to receive permanent housing. If you're gonna put somebody in housing and you don't provide any type of services for them, no treatment services, no case management, know anything for them, you just stick them in the house just so you don't have to look at them, and they can do what they want in there, how are we really helping? 